Good evening. Um, I wrote once two novels, but I wouldn't recommend them to anyone. So. And I will certainly not read from them tonight. Um, I will start with some older poems which were part of the first collection in English, Tremor, and also because um, we have here Baron Wormser in the audience, and he wrote one of the first essays on my poems in this country, in, in Parnassus, and it was for me a very memorable essay. So, And he drove from Maine, that's no, from Vermont, sorry. But it's a big state, right? <laughs> so I read, I read these poems from Tremor, and then I will, I will leap to new poems. I'll start maybe with this poem, with this short poem uh, called My Masters. And these first translations were not by Claire. You met, some of you saw Claire Kavanagh here, or met her. And, but she was a child when these poems were translated. So uh, this was another translator, Renata Gorczynski, with Bob Haas, actually, who helped her. And then there was one volume. But no, that's too complicated. OK, so that's Renata Gorczynski, the translator. My masters, my masters are not infallible. They're neither Goethe, who had a sleepless night only when distant volcanoes moaned, nor Horace, who wrote in the language of gods and altar boys. My masters seek my advice in fleecy overcoats hurriedly slipped on over their dreams at the dawn when the cool wind interrogates the birds, my masters talk in whispers. I can hear their broken speech. And also from Tremor, a longer poem. Um, I imagine that Franz Schubert, who is one of my favorite composer that he gave a press conference, which he never did. He, uh, he couldn't give, because he died young and no one knew that he was a great composer. Franz Schubert, a press conference. Yes, my life was short. Yes, I laughed, felt a light growing. Yes, under my finger, sparks were born. Yes, I had little time. I didn't know how much. I pitied Gretchen, dead youth, the unrequited. No, the flame wasn't mute. Yes, I ran through icy forests, chased by snow, yellow stars, and by the strangeness of style itself. No, not the police. I don't know if it was a devil. There was no epoch, only green grass, ash trees, becalmed objects, 
dragonflies over palms, but no epoch, a wooden floor, reticent chairs. Yes, Vienna, the taste of coffee same as now, pigeons on the windowsills. No, I didn't foresee the spring tide of nations. I don't know, don't remember. This question is too personal. No, I'm not familiar with Wagner's music. Can we communicate? Regret, even envy. I don't know whether it's fate, a glove, such delicate snowflakes, if only they don't turn into a blizzard. The green eyes of that girl. My destiny was too big, like a tent. My heart throbbed so clumsily in those huge rooms. Yes, talent, teeth crushing bitter coffee beans. No, I was afraid. I was surrounded on all sides. The armies of mercenaries charged straight at me. Oh, gentlemen, how could you compare me to Admiral Nelson? No, shadows bellowed, whispers pealed like cathedral bells, appearances barked. Yes, I admit I was wrong sometimes. How could I know that I was Schubert? I was in the state of becoming, looked for a way, a color. You can't know me, only an echo. Yes, I was in that strait where suffering changes into song. Yes, evergreen forest and unrequited love, the joy of being indifferent. Precisely, I wanted to say, the happiness of expression, halfway between life and death, exactly halfway. Yes, even here the cheers of dancing people reach us, but they clot in the gelatin of memory. Don't turn back, don't take the wrong direction. But of course, you can't transform life into a lead, it's only a very small Noah's Ark. You know, gentlemen, not people by spe but species, not flowers but specimens, not fragrances but descriptions. While we ran wild in the meadow's luxury, in weeds and in wind, in dandelions and anemones, in the huge plural of sounds and colors, passionate and speechless, submissive to the demands of breathless messengers, in jubilation, in sin, in prayer, morning and evening, in boredom and laughter, the eternal dance lasted, lasted. May, June, so many things were happening, fear and games, cut fingers, gaping mouth, real kisses and kisses only in daydreams, braids, ears of wheat, your glances, a veranda, Silence and nothing, the crimson of the fall. Yes, I remember everything, larks on long threads, puppies, a hazel, hazel grove, the warm brick of the city, the voices fading in the dusk, and night, a box in which children hide their treasures. The sleep and the vigil, Venus in the pale sky, shivering from cold. Yes, it's even better now. 
Only two lips talk to themselves in the singing, a piano nearby in its gleaming tuxedo. Yes, I'm tired now, and no, it's not a complaint. Now I will skip to the to canvas. The canvas, this was the complicated, and there were many translators. Um, still Renata Gorczynski, but helped by, by other, by C.K. Williams and Benjamin Ivory. So from canvas, the poem, Electric Elegy. Um, there are plenty of political leaders here, some of them very famous or obnoxiously famous, but also two, two Polish communist leaders, you don't know, you don't need to know who they were. Um, and it, it's, a, it's an allergy for a radio, and I, I, I grew up in a kind of post-German city because I was, I was born in this city that became part of the Soviet Union, and we were brought east, uh, westward to Silesia. And I grew up in these among post-German objects. And one of these post-German objects was this German radio. And I was in love with this radio, though it was post-German, but I didn't know it then. And it, I, I called this poem Electric Elegy. Farewell, German radio, with your green eye and your bulky box together almost composing a body and soul. Your lamps glowed with a pink salmony light like Bergson's deep self. Through the thick fabric of the speaker, my ear glued to you as to the lattice of a confessional. Mussolini once whispered, Hitler shouted, Stalin calmly explained, Bierut hissed, Gomulka held endlessly forth. But no one radio will accuse you of treason. No, your only sin was obedience, absolute tender faithfulness to the kilohertz. Whoever came was welcomed, whoever was sent was received. Of course I know only the songs of Schubert brought you the jade of true joy. To Chopin's waltzes, your electric heart throbbed delicately and firmly, and the clothes of the speaker pulsated like the breasts of amorous girls in old novels. Not with the news, though, especially not Radio Free Europe or the BBC. Then your eye would grow nervous, the green pupil widen and shrink, as though its atropine dose had been altered. Mad seagulls lived inside you and Macbeth. At night, forlorn signals found shelter in your rooms. Sailors cried out for help. The young comet cried, losing her head. Your old age was announced 
by a cracked voice, then rattles, coughing, and finally blindness, your eye faded, and total silence. Sleep peacefully, German radio, dream Schumann, and don't waken when the next dictator rooster crows. <clears throat> Now jump even more. This was joke, Richard Howard's joke that he on, he's only jumping to conclusions. This was his only sport, he said. This is a short poem from Mysticism for Beginners called Cello. Those who don't like it say it's just a mutant violin that's been kicked out of the chorus. Not so. The cello has many secrets, but it never sobs, just sings in its low voice. Not everything turns into song, though. Sometimes you catch a murmur or a whisper. I'm lonely. I can't sleep. Now back to for a second to to canvas. Um, this this poem is called "Watching Shaw in a Hotel Room in America," and I, I mean Shaw, the film by Lanz, Claude Lanzmann, you know, the famous documentary. And it happened so that I was once in Berkeley, and I I stayed in a hotel on the on the campus, and there was Shaw on television, which I watched, and and so this is the beginning of this poem. Watching Shaw in a hotel room in America. There are nights as soft as fur on a fall, but we prefer chess or card playing. Here, some hotel guests sing happy birthday as, this, as the one-eyed TV nonchalantly shuffles its images. The trees of my childhood have crossed an ocean to greet me coolly from the screen. Polish peasants engage with a Jesuitical zest in theological disputes. Only the Jews are silent, exhausted by their long dying. The rivers of the voyages of my youth flow cautiously over the distant, unfamiliar continent. Hay wagons hold not hay, but hair, their axles squeaking under the feathery weight. We are innocent, the pines claim. The SS officers are haggard and old. Doctors struggle to save them their hearts, lives, consciences. It's late, the insinuations of drowsiness have me. 
I would sleep, but my neighbor's choir, happy birthday, still louder, louder than the dying Jews. Huge trucks transport stars from the firmament. Gloomy trains go by in the rain. I'm innocent, Mozart repents. Only the Aspen, as usual, trembles, prepared to confess all its crimes. The Czech Jews sing the national anthem, Where is my home? There is no home. Houses burn. The cold gas whistles within. I grow more and more innocent, sleeping. The TV reassures me both of us are beyond suspicion. The birthday is noisier. The shoes of Auschwitz in pyramids high as the sky groan faintly. Alas, we outlived mankind. Now let us sleep, sleep. We have nowhere to go. Uh, I had today two conferences with two poets, and I think it was with Kate we had this conversation. Uh, uh, what is lyric, lyric poetry? And it seems to me that lyric poetry is something very simple, that the essence of a lyric poem for the poet is to say, I live. It's, it's so simple, I live. And the, but you cannot do this. You cannot simply say, I live, because no one would publish this poem. Right? <laughs> so you create a whole construction. But in the middle of the poem has to be the signal, I live. But we also write poems for the time when we will not be here. Because you, know, you may not know, but each poet will die one day. And when we die, this I live changes to I lived. And when we read. When we read a Greek poet from, you know, 2,000 years ago, it's not I lived, but I lived. Or when, when you read a Chinese poet from 2,000 years ago. So it's, it's very simple, the lyric poetry, but you have to complicate it and to make it more difficult. But not too much, as some poets try to. Uh, now, an, a different kind of a poem. This is called My Ends. Um, I will read a few poems in Polish for Ivy, who told me that I, shouldn't, I should read in Polish, but later, later. <clears throat> My Ends. Always caught up in what they called the practical side of life. Theory was for Plato up to their elbows in furniture, in bedding, in cupboards and kitchen gardens. They never neglected the lavender sachets that turned a linen closet to a meadow. The practical side of life, like the moon's unlighted face, didn't lack for mysteries. When Christmas time drew near, life became pure praxis and resided temporarily in hallways, took refuge, took refuge in suitcases and satchels. And when somebody died, 
It happened even in our family, alas. My aunt, preoccupied with death practical side, forgot at last about the lavender whose frantic scent bloomed selflessly beneath a heavy snow of sheets. I thought it was a funny poem, but it ends with, with someone dying, so it's not so funny. Um, now, this is a, um, this is a, a train poem, it, but it, I don't need to explain. This one is an allusion to Gustav Mahler's Song of the Earth, which ends, which is one of the most beautiful a uh, piece of music ever composed. I, I have a, I know a, a, a German writer who loves the Song of Earth so much that he says that it's God. Not that God speaks through it, but that it, it is God. And I cannot agree. I love this music very much, but I don't think it's God. This poem is called Opus Posthumus. The train stopped in a field. The sudden silence startled even sleep's most ardent partisans. The distant lights of shops or factories glittered in the haze like the yellow eyes of wolves. Businessmen on trips stooped over their computers, totting up the day's losses and gains. The stewardess poured coffee steeped in bitterness. Ewig, ewig, last word, song of the earth, it repeats so often. Remember how we listened to this music, to the promise that we so longed to believe. We don't know if we are still in Holland. This may be Belgium now, no matter. An early winter evening and the earth hid beneath thick streaks of dusk. You could sense the presence of a canal's black water, unmoving, stripped of mountain currents joy and the great amazement of our oceans. Wolves' yellow eyes were quivering with a nervous neon light, but no one feared an Indian attack. The train stopped at that moment when our reason starts to stir, but the soul, its noble yearning, is asleep. We are listening at different time to Schubert, that posthumous quintet where despair declares itself insistently, intently, almost insatiably, renewing its assault on the indifference of the genteel concert hall ladies in the furs, and the reviewers, minor envoys of the major papers. And once out walking, midnight, summer in the country, a strange sound stopped us short, snorting and neighing of unseen horses in a pasture, as though the night laughed happily to itself. What is poetry if we see so little? What is salvation if there is no threat? 
posthumous quintet. Only music keeps on growing after death. Music, music and the hair of trees. As if rivers gave ecstatic milk and honey. As if dancers danced in frenzy once again. And yet we are not alone. One day some guitar worn by time will start singing for itself alone. And the train moves at last. The earth rocks under, underneath its stately weight and slowly Paris draws close with its golden aura, its gray doubt. <clears throat> okay, now I'll switch to new poems. And first, this is a poem um, about my mother. The title is simply about my mother. I could never say anything about my mother. How she repeated, you will regret it one day when I'm not around anymore. And how I didn't believe in either I'm, I'm not or anymore. How I liked watching as she read bestsellers, always turning to the last chapter first. How in the kitchen, convinced it's not her proper place, she made Sunday coffee or, even worse, filet of cod. How she studied the mirror while expecting guests, making the face that best kept her from seeing herself as she was. I take after her in this and other weaknesses. How she went on at length about things that weren't her strong suit, and how I stupidly teased her. For example, when she compared herself to Beethoven going deaf, and I said cruelly, but you know, he had talent. <laughs> and how she forgave it all, and how I remember, and how I remember that, and how I flew from Houston to her funeral and couldn't say anything, and still, Hand. <clears throat> don't be sad that I hide these poems, but I don't have, we have to, to I, I cannot read for five hours. That <laughs> um, I will read this poem in in both languages. This is an elegy for an, for an Italian friend of mine whose name was Paola Malavasi. She was a translator and a friend. Um, defenseless, in memoriam, Paola Malavasi. September 2005, we came back from vacation, sat down at the kitchen table covered in green oilcloth. Suddenly, Nicola calls, asking, do you know that Paola Malavasi died suddenly in the morning on Sunday at the hotel in Venice? No, I hadn't heard. Those two words, died and Paola, met then for the first time. Paola had just turned 40, a pretty smiling woman. 
She taught Latin and Greek at the high school. She wrote and translated poems. The word died is much older and never smiles. Some months have passed and I still don't believe in her death. She studied life and poetry, antiquity and today. Nothing speaks to her death. The weather is fine in the photographs. Her face is defenseless and open. Her face still summons the future, but the future, distracted, now looks the other way. So, this is for Ivy in Polish. Bezbronna. Wrzesień 2005. Wróciliśmy z wakacji. Siedzieliśmy przy stole w kuchni nakrytym zieloną ceratą. Nagle dzwoni Nikola. Pyta, czy wiem, że umarła Paula Malawazji. Niespodziewanie, rano, w niedzielę, w weneckim hotelu. Nie, nic nie wiedziałem. Te dwa słowa umarła i Paula spotkały się wtedy po raz pierwszy. Paula miała dopiero 40 lat. Była ładną, uśmiechniętą kobietą. Uczyła greki i łaciny w liceum. Pisała i tłumaczyła wiersze. Słowo umarła jest o wiele starsze i nigdy się nie uśmiecha. Minęło już kilka miesięcy, nadal nie mogę uwierzyć w jej śmierć. Paula zajmowała się życiem i poezją, starożytnością i nowoczesnością. O jej śmierci nic się nie da powiedzieć. Na fotografiach wciąż zachowuje pogodę. Jej twarz jest bezbronna i otwarta. Jej twarz wciąż wzywa przyszłość, ale przyszłość roztargniona patrzy już w inną stronę. Now, this is a, a self-portrait. Um, it's called self-portrait in an airplane. And it's certainly not in the business class. Right? You would, you would guess it from the poem, anyway. Crouched like an embryo, crashed into the narrow seat, I tried to remember the scent of fresh-cut hay when wooden carts descend in August from the mountain meadows, lurching down dirt roads, and the driver cries out, as men always do when they panic. They screamed that way in the Iliad and have never fallen silent since, not during the Crusades or later, much later, near us, when no one listens. I'm tired. I think about what can't be thought, about the silence that reigns in forests when the birds sleep, about the coming end of summer, I hold my head in my hands as if shielding it from annihilation. Seen from outside, I doubtless seem immobile, almost dead, resigned, deserving sympathy. But it's not so. I'm free, maybe even happy. Yes, 
I hold my heavy head in my hands, but inside it, a poem's being born. Um, this is a very short poem, Lost. Lost, lost in gray hallways. At night, the light bulbs hiss like signals of sinking ships. We read books forgotten by their authors. There is no truth, wise men repeat. Summer evenings, festivals of swifts, peonies erupting in the suburbs. Streams seem abbreviated by the heat, the ease of seeing. Autumn creeps up surreptitiously. Still, sometimes we surface for a moment, and the setting sun sometimes gleams, and a short-lived certainty appears, nearly faith. Yes, you're losing all these poems. You will never know these <laughs> poems. Uh, now again, I will read in both, it's a short poem, in both languages. The Last Stop. This is a, a childhood poem from my childhood in Silesia, which is a very industrial, heavy industrial um, region with coal mines and the last stop, the tram rumbled past red houses. The wheels in mining towers whirled like carousels in fairgrounds. Rose, roses dimmed by soot grew in the gardens. Wasps raged in pastry shops above cakes strewn with crumbs. I was 15. The tram moved quicker between the housing projects. On the meadows, I spotted marsh marigolds. I thought that at the last stop, the meaning of it all would stand revealed. But nothing happened, nothing. The driver ate a roll with cheese. Two old women talked quietly about prices and diseases. Ostatni przystanek. Tramwaj jechał wzdłuż czerwonych domów. Koła na wieżach kopalń wirowały jak karuzele w wesołym miasteczku. W ogródkach rosły ocienione sadzą róże. W sukierniach złościły się osy nad ciastem posypanym kruszonką. Miałem 15 lat. Tramwaj jechał coraz szybciej pomiędzy osiedlami. Na łąkach widziałem żółte kaczyni. Kaczeńce. Myślałem, że na ostatnim przystanku odsłoni się sens wszystkiego, ale nic się nie stało. Nic. Motorniczy jadł bułkę z serem. Dwie stare kobiety cicho rozmawiały o cenach, o chorobach. Now this is a poem for my father. Um, my father is still alive but he lost memory totally, completely. 
Actually, he also lost consciousness. He's unconscious. He, he'll be 98 soon. And I pray, I would love that he died because he's, he's outside this world totally. Now that you've lost your memory, now that you've lost your memory and can, and can only smile, defenseless, I want to help. It was you, after all, who opened my imagination like a demiurge. I remember our excursions, woolly clouds swimming low over a damp mountain forest. You knew every path in those woods. And the summer day when we scaled the heights of a lighthouse above the Baltic, and we watched the endless rippling of the sea, its white stitches Freight like basted seams. I won't forget that moment. I think you were moved too. We seemed to see the whole world, boundless, calmly breathing, blue and perfect, at once distinct and hazy, near and distant. We felt the planet's roundness. We heard the gulls who played at aimless gliding through warm and chilly currents of the air. I can't help you. I have only one memory. Um, this is a short poem, the title is Poets Photographed. Poets photographed, but never when they truly see. Poets photographed against a backdrop of books, but never in darkness, never in silence, at night, in uncertainty, when they hesitate, when joy, like phosphorus, clings to matches. Poets smiling, well-informed, serene. Poets photographed when they are not poets. If only we knew what music is. If only we understood. Now you... We are losing some more poems, and I'm slowly. Um, this is a strange poem about swifts. Swifts are among the birds I love most. You know that they actually explain everything in the poem. It's, uh, the title is "Swifts Storming Saint Catherine's Church." It's a church in Krakow. It's a Gothic church, which was actually never finished. It's beautiful in its unfinishedness. Um, and Swifts come to Krakow in, uh, I think, in late April and leave in August. So they are sort of short term. They're like tourists in Krakow. Watching the Swifts storm St. Catherine's Church, its lofty walls raised of brick and white stone, I thought the Swifts, in their mad, haphazard, grand attack on the Gothic structure, and in their whistles, shrill and coarse, utterly unhuman, 
competing with cell ringtones and singing blackbirds giving their final concert are the image of ecstasy, but not ecstasy itself. They can't be, they don't want to be, they aren't John of the Cross or Catherine of Alexandria or Catherine of Siena. They know neither fullness nor void, doubt and pursuit, despair and rapture. Swifts are of the species Apus Apus. They resemble swallows, but share no kinship. They are unable to navigate on land. They only know one thing, flight. Only the endless soaring overhead that demands a spectator both slightly sober and a little touched. They need an eye and heart. The eye must trace the trajectories of dark missiles, the trail of a spaceship smashed into tiny shards of dark, nervous matter. And the heart must sustain them with what it cannot lack, enthusiasm. And thus, fortified, the swifts and the observer's, observer's heart join for a brief moment in an unlikely contract, in admiration for a world that has decided on a late June evening, so it seems to reveal before us nonchalantly one of its zealously kept secrets before night returns, mosquitoes and ignorance. And my life, unfinished, uncertain, made of joy and fear, of ceaseless, unsated curiosity, what's coming next? But now the day's shutters bang closed, and I've already said too much. Um, now, maybe two more poems. Um, this is a poem that has to do with the city where I was born, with Lvov. But it's not a, this is a new poem. Um, um, this is this, this city that's now in, in Ukraine, which, which I lost, so to speak, when I was four months old. We, this is where we went west. And I still have, I went, I, I went several times to Lvov, which is, which is actually a very beautiful city, I must say, which, which is actually too bad. I would love it to be an ugly city. It would, would be easier, but... Um, so this poem is called, I look at a photograph. I look at a photograph of the city where, where I was born, at its lush gardens and winding streets, at the hills, the Catholic roofs, the domes of the Orthodox churches, where on Sunday the bases sing so mightily that neighboring trees sway as in a hurricane. I gaze at the photograph. I can't tear my eyes away. And suddenly I imagine that they are all still alive, as if nothing had happened. They still scurry to lectures, wait for trains, take sky-blue trams, check calendars with alarm, step on scales 
listen to Verdi's arias and their favorite operetta, read newspapers that are still white, live in haste and fear, are always late, are a bit immortal but don't know it. Someone is behind with the rent, someone fears consumption, someone can't finish his thesis on Kant, doesn't understand what things in themselves are. My grandmother still goes to Brzuchowice carrying a cake on her outstretched arms and they don't droop. In the pharmacy, a shy boy requests a cure for shyness. A girl examines her small breasts in a mirror. My cousin goes to the park straight from his bath and doesn't guess that he'll soon catch pneumonia. Enthusiasm erupts at times. In winter, yellow lamps create cozy circles. In July, flies loudly celebrate the summer's great light and hum twilight hymns. Pogroms occur, uprising, deportations, the cruel Wehrmacht in becoming uniforms, the foul NKVD invades, red stars promise friendship but signify betrayal. But they don't see it, they almost don't see it. They have so much to do, they need to lay up coal for winter to find a good doctor, the unanswered letters grow, the brown ink fades, a radio plays in the room, their latest by, but they are still worn by ordinary life and death. They don't have time. They apologize. They write long letters and laconic postcards. They're always late, hopelessly late, the same as us, exactly like us, like me. And I will, I will end with... Um, Another, another self-portrait. So then, ten more poems you will never know, unless you buy the book in a in a year or so. <coughs> this is this is a self-portrait, and actually, I, something strange happened. I um, the one of the. A great painter that lived today, Eric Fisher, an American painter, came to Krakow and he, he gave a, he spoke about his work and he showed, there was a reproduction of his self-portrait shown where he's represented as half clown, half himself. And I, I fell in love with this painting and at this very moment this poem was sort of written in my head and then for three days I, I, I wrote it down. And I sent it to him later on. Self-portrait. Keeps growing older. Frayed costumes. Reads a lot. Sometimes vanishes in books like Indians in trackless jungles. Repeats himself. Everything repeats. Yellow notebook in his pocket. Music's great summons. Evenings, he moves to the window in a rumpled shirt and yawns. Looks a little different in every picture. His father's face invades his own slightly melancholy face. The short white beard, his enemies insist, 
must signify capitulation. The eyes gaze at the lens with hope, growing older, like water, flat, sleepy rivers and the green ocean. When swimming, his body disappears in the dark currents as if temporarily testing another mode of being. The wind takes his breath, night bestows absolute peace. The only absolute we've got, a friend, scoffs. They've been arguing for a decade. A citizen, he thinks of his injured country, the garden of a childhood that never was. Takes many trips, April in Belgrade, the pockmarts of a recent war, the swollen Danube recalls its carefree early years in Germany. Jerusalem in May, more scars of war, but holiness drifts above the mythic city like the sand of magnolias. A journalist's questions seem oddly familiar. Strangeness grows. Always the same, early breakfast after lunch, a long stroll, slowly becoming a fixed object. Dreams drag him down. Dawn deftly rescues him. But it is still I, still I, ever searching and shapeless. Always I. Every morning opens a shining new chapter and can't finish it. It is I on the street, at the station, I hearing a child's cry, students laughing, a starling's shriek. The eye of ignorance, uncertainty, desire, expectation and wild joy. I who understands nothing, answers insults, hesitates, starts afresh, guards himself in conversations, in despair, in learned debates, in a winter day's quiet. It is I, bored, resigned, unhappy, haughty. It is I, daydreaming like a teenager, dead, tired like the aged. I in the museum, at the seashore, on Krakow's main square, yearning for a moment that won't show, that hides like mountain peaks on cloudy afternoons. Brightness finally arrives, and I suddenly know all. No, it is not I. Thank you. If you wish, I, I can answer a few questions. It's not a tradition here, but let's break the tradition. Yes. Mm -hmm. I wonder about that movement's people and the effect on the psyche, and how did that movement that was forced on your family affect you, and how does it affect your writing? Mm -hmm. Well, this 
it affects every generation differently. The, in my family, there's three generations that traveled. The generation of my grandparents, the generation of my parents and, and children. I was four months old, so I, I don't remember much from this trip. The most affected were the, the grandparents. They simply couldn't adjust to the new place. They were actually in the 60s, which, you know, my age now, but they were, they were thrown into a completely new landscape you know, or cityscape, which they never accepted. Uh, I, I told you my father is, has no memory, but he has his sister, who is young, young because she's only 94 and she still remembers, she's, she still considers this new city something ugly, you know, something... Once we, we went my, with my wife to, to Lvov and, and my wife wanted to please her and said, you know, it's such a beautiful city. And my aunt said, and so what? And it was like, and this so what was the whole bitterness of, of her loss. You know, that she was taken out of this, from this beautiful city to this industrial place. And, and this so what, I, I, you know, I found that the entire tragedy of her life. And, uh, the generation of my parents, actually, they were still young and very active. So I think they, they adjusted uh, pretty soon. My father was a this young professor at the engineering college, and, and he had plenty of things to do, my, my mother too. Only when they grew older, uh, when my mother died many years ago, and and, my, and then my father was, you know, until 90, he had his memory, then he started to lose it. And he told one of the, the we, we, have the we, we hired two very nice women who helped him, and we still do, and, and he, he told one of these women, you know, um, my wife is in Lvov now, and I will join her soon. So for, for him, the death of my mother was like she went back to Lvov, to this, to this city. And for us, the, the, the children, it was, we, at, the, at first, nothing. We just didn't perceive it. It, it took me, but we were all the, there was this didact, didactic efforts of our whole family to tell us, you know, the real place is not here, look at, we had the, there were these watercolors from Lvov on the on the walls and photographs and books and so we lived in this. But first, at first we rejected. We said this is one of the things that old people like, you know, these you know old places. But later, when I grew a little older, and I knew that it was part of my life, this loss, the loss of this city. So it became part of my, of what I write. It's one of the major themes for me. Not the only one, but, but one of, of, of many. But now when you go to this place, and I still, I visit my father, though he doesn't recognize me now. And I, in the streets I hear the language, because they spoke a different language. They had, you know, the language with this Eastern accent, Polish, but with Eastern accent. And the local people, the Silesians, they spoke with, with the local accent, which is more like German, so like, the, the Polish spoken in the East had the kind of Russian softness, and the Polish spoken in the West had the German toughness. And you could easily say, this, one, this person is from Lvov, this person is from Silesia. 
But now they mixed up. There's like a new dialect or new accent. This mix up of the two. Of the, so in, in a way, it's like the European Union. You know, the accents have, have encountered themselves and mixed up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, we can also end here. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs>